Amen. Good morning. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to go to the book of John, the first chapter. And uh, we're going to continue this morning with the series I began, I guess now three weeks ago, we began with a message called, What's Your Worldview? And last week we talked about clarifying our worldview, and today is God's worldview. Uh, what is God's worldview? What does God see when he sees this earth when he looks not only at the world but when he looks at you individually what does God see how does God see you and uh, so I want to tell you something God's worldview will make a world of difference in your life if we will see not only the world but ourselves as God sees us it's going to change everything John chapter 1 verse 14 we're going to read also verse 17 and the word became flesh aren't you glad for that and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Notice this expression, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And then down in verse 17, it says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth, there's that phrase again, grace and truth is hooked together, came through Jesus Christ. So on one side we have the law, on the other side we have grace and truth, and it's through Jesus Christ. Sometimes I hear this statement made that grace and truth must be kept in balance. In fact, that's such an important topic. The book that, that we're getting um, published and the book I'm writing, I devoted a whole chapter just to that one subject. But grace and truth do not need to be kept in balance. Uh, this, when you hear that statement, that's somebody that's objecting to the preaching of the gospel of grace in its undiluted, unmixed form. By that I mean it's not being mixed with law and grace mixed together. Jesus said you can't put new wine into an old wineskin. And uh, grace and truth is not grace or truth. Notice it said grace and truth. And Jesus is not part grace and part truth. And sometimes when you hear people say, that we need to be keep it in balance, what they're really saying is that they equate truth as to being the law, the old covenant, the law of Moses. And that's not what truth is at all. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is truth. Jesus is grace. He didn't come to teach a lesson or a doctrine about grace. He came to be grace to us. Amen. He is our grace. And so I said this over and over Trying to separate grace from truth is like trying to separate wet from water. You just can't do it. It's an impossibility. So that we, we want to we look at that this morning. Father, we thank you for your word and for the grace of God that has appeared to this world for salvation to them that will believe it. I pray today that they would become, Lord God, believing in that grace, your goodness, and the truth that they recognize and see in you will set them free. In Jesus' name, everybody said Amen. You can be seated. I just want to touch on this and, and, and move on to something else, but, but balance is a word you hear a lot, and uh, it's not a bad word. It's a word that does apply. Balance concept is real uh, prevalent in our culture, and, um, and it's correct if you apply it correctly. In other words, if you're saying, well, we need to balance uh, work time with leisure time, or I need to keep in balance the time spent away from my family working and time with my family. How many can see that balance applies in those areas? But it doesn't apply in every way. So if you're saying, I need to find a balance between fidelity and infidelity in my marriage. How many knows that's just stupid? Um, 
so uh, the, the point of that is the, uh, sometimes the attempt to apply the concept of balance, it just, it balance, it doesn't fit. And so that's what we have here when we look at the case with grace and truth. Grace and truth do not stand in contrast to each other. Uh, they are on the same side of the line. There is a line, and there is a line drawn, and that line is the old covenant and the new covenant. It is the, the law of Moses and the grace and truth of God. And Jesus, again, I said, was not part grace and part truth, but he is the fullness of grace, and he is also the fullness of truth. Can somebody say amen to that? And so listen, when you allow God's worldview to become your worldview, then you will live a life that is full of grace and truth. And what we have, and, I, and in this series, it's been a little bit different for me because I'm having to describe some things in our culture and so that we can arrive and make sure that our view is God's view, that we're living out. And I talked about, I think it was last Sunday, how that, and I think it was in John 18, where Jesus stood before Pilate. He said, what is truth? But he never waited to get the answer. And we have Christians today that say, well, I love Jesus, but the Bible has no effect on how they live, how they vote, how they decisions they make, how they live their life, and, 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 uh, and I'm seeing more and more of that. What we have is a, we have a, a crisis of credibility in, our, uh, in, in, in all areas, really, uh, all around us, and, and what we see in that is a real moral decline. And, um, and I can express uh, that decline in two words. And I try to th say things that help you remember them, but uh, we'll say it with two words, truth decay. Now, I didn't say tooth decay. We have truth decay, so maybe that'll help you to remember it. Now, there is such thing as tooth decay, too. And there's signs and symptoms of, truth de uh, of tooth decay. And if you don't know what those signs and symptoms, you may could very well lose your tooth, which will cause you to lose your smile, which will cause a lot of problems, okay? But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a truth decay that's going on. And this is what Jesus said in John 8, 32, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now see, but you have to know the truth. And the word know there is a very intimate word. It's like Adam knew Eve and gave birth to sons and daughters. So, so you've got to be intimate. In other words, that truth can't be something that's just in your head. It's got to be in your heart. You have to know it. You have to know the truth. It's not the truth that I know that will set you free. It's the truth that you know. And so, so freedom, listen to me, freedom comes from truth. Uh, the more truth you know, guess what? The more free you become in the area that that truth is unveiling and revealing. So in other words, the more you give up on truth, the more you compromise truth, the more you, uh, uh, you know, disregard truth, then, then what happens is that you forfeit your freedom in that area. And, and so in our culture, we, we don't value truth like we used to. Um, listen, if, if you don't stop um, the truth decay, that's going on, and, 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 and sometimes it can just creep into a Christian's life. You begin to say, well, I don't know what I believe in that area anymore. I'm not sure about that. or, or uh, you know, And, and we, have, we have this thing now that we deal with, and I'm going to have to use some of these words. I think I gave you six or seven isms last Sunday, or maybe it was the Sunday before, but, but I'm going to give you another ism, and that's postmodernism. Uh, how many of you have heard that expression, postmodernism? That's the, that's the present culture that you and I live in, it's, listen, it's very, very difficult to actually define uh, what postmodernism is uh, because to define it would violate the postmodernist's premise that there's no definite terms. So in other words, if you define it, then you're actually going against what they say postmodernism is. In other words, they're saying there is no absolute truths, there's no boundaries, 
And truth really doesn't exist. Truth is relative to the person. So what we have came from as a society, and I'm talking about American culture, we had pre-modernism, uh, uh, pre-modernism. Now li listen, to, listen to this dissent, this truth decay. Pre-modernism, this is, this is what it, it was. It was uh, our whole objective was for the ultimate truth, the ultimate truth. It was supernatural in its origin, and all authority comes from the Word of God. The, the, you know, and I pray that's the way most of us in this room believe today, because that's God's view. And then we slip from postmodernism to, I mean, pre-modernism to modernism, and this is the objective was still ultimate truth, but, but it became anti-supernatural, and then the authority no longer came from the Word of God, but it started coming from science and human reasoning. Anybody remember that phase? And now we've uh, digressed into postmodernism, which ultimate truth now, they say, cannot be known. Uh, it does not even exist. It is mystical in its roots, and there is absolutely no authority in the life of that person that believes in postmodernism. Uh, it, it says that there, the idea is that there's no such thing as truth. Uh, you know, Pilate, when he said that, Jesus, what is truth? He, he was already in that mindset. It, it says what is true for you is not necessarily true for me. That it's all relative. Uh, that I get to decide what is true for me. Well, that's just stupid. That's dumb. I didn't say the person is. I just said that belief is dumb. That, that, that's like going out here on the interstate and, and a person going north in the southbound lane. And the guy that's in the, in the southbound lane rolls his window down and sticks his head out and yells at you and say, Hey, dude, you're going the wrong way. And, and then you reply, Well, it might not be right for you, but this is right for me. And I get to decide what's right and what's wrong. Well, there's going to be a guy in a blue and gray going to pull you over and to tell you that he's going to absolutely, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. And if somebody, if something doesn't happen, then you're going to cause a lot of trauma. And um, it, it's, that's, but that's how dumb it is. Uh, Postmodernism goes by another word, and I've already used it a couple of times, but it's relativism. Well, it's all relative, Brother Dale. I mean, it's all, I mean, there's no absolutes. If you say, there's no absolutes. Now listen to me. If you say there are no absolutes, that's an absolute statement. See how dumb that is? To say there's no absolutes, that you're, you're, you're making an absolute. Relativism is the view that moral and ethical statements that vary widely from person to person are all of equal value and nobody's one opinion is right or wrong. It's really... Uh, Nobody's opinion is better than anybody else. That, that is so dumb. That's like you, I say, well, the moon is made of rock, and you go, it's made of cheese. And you will say those opinions are just as equal. No. You, you, that, that, that's stupid. It's like you go to the pharmacist. The doctor sends you to the pharmacist to get a prescription he, he wrote for you to, you to get it filled. And the pharmacist looks at you and says, you know what? I, I don't have that prescription that, you know, that your doctor wrote for you, but I'm just going to give you anything I got back here. I got something back here. I'll just give that to you. We'll see how fast you believe in postmodernism and relativism when you stand there at the pharmacy counter. You're going to go, no, I want you to give me absolutely what the doctor prescribed. So there are absolutes in, in life, and we're surrounded by people in our culture who value tolerance now more than they value truth. Would you agree with that? And so if you value truth, like what I'm doing right now, if you really value and draw attention to the truth of God's word, then what you're accused of is being intolerant. 
And uh, let me tell you something. It's not judgmental to tell the truth. It's not judgmental, but that's the society we live in. And, and we've got this thing, and that's a whole other message in itself just crept in, that, that it's always wrong for a Christian to, to, in other words, it's wrong for a Christian to ever express anything that might hurt somebody's feelings. In other words, to be a Christian, you can't hurt anybody's feelings. Well, Jesus didn't go by that. He hurt feelings every day when he went out. He's not hurting people, but he hurt their belief systems, which in turn hurt their feelings. I mean, don't tell me that Jesus didn't hurt people. I mean, I mean, he, he even used names sometimes. You whitewash grave you. You clean up the outside, the inside full of dead men's bones. I mean, that'll hurt your feelings. I mean, John the Baptist said, call people to come to get, they went to the baptism. We're going to have a baptism service here in a couple of Sundays. Imagine me standing in the baptistry, the baptist, and I see somebody walk on the stage, and I go, you viper. What caused you to come up here to be baptized to try to flee the wrath of God? I don't even believe you're a Christian. Go back and you bring proof that you've really been converted and then I'll think about baptizing you. Do you know that what I just said is in the Bible? That's what John said? John said, I'm not fixing to baptize any of you. Go back and bring me proof. Bring me proof that something's changed in your life and then I'll baptize you. I mean, that's not how to win friends and build a church. Come on. That's why Paul told the Galatia church in Galatians 4 and 16, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth. If you tell some people the truth, they're going to say, well, you're my enemy. There, there are signs of truth decay going on everywhere. I'm going to give you just a few of them. The first one that we see that is an indication that we are maybe suffering from truth decay is immaturity. I mean just immaturity. I'm talking about in the body of Christ. What do you see that? People that are less willing to accept responsibility. Everything's about them. Uh, for their, their edification, their convenience. They've lost sight of the corporate body of the church. It doesn't matter about what the church as a whole is doing. It's just about me. What, what serves me? What do you offer me? Uh, they blame others. That's a sign of immaturity. That's what kids do. It's not my fault. Let me. The other day I heard this guy saying that he walked into the room and they had a cookie jar there and it was almost supper time and his little daughter was up on the counter and she had her arm up to her elbow into the cookie jar. And, uh, and he walked around the corner, and she saw her dad. And so she's got one arm in the cookie jar now with the, up to the elbow, and so she's got one hand free. And when she saw her daddy, then she started doing like this, like she's directing a choir. So she went from thievery to doing a noble thing of directing a choir. That's, that's a picture of us right there. That, that's a picture of us. Uh, you know, a, a child expects others to take care of them. Uh, Ephesians 4, I think we're going to put up the message version. I hope we are because that's what I'm going to read. Uh, the message translation of Ephesians 4 was so cool. I just wanted to read it in verse 14. This is what Paul writes to the church. No prolonged emphases among us. Please, we'll not tolerate babes in the woods. Small children who are an easy mark for imposters. God wants us to grow up, to know the whole truth and tell it in love. Like Christ in everything. We take our lead from Christ, who is the source of everything that we do. Isn't that good? God wants us to grow up. Grow up in the truth of God. Uh, you know, knowing right from wrong is a mark of maturity. 
Every parent desires that for their children, to be able for them to come into a place of maturity that that parent's not having to say, that's right and this is wrong. But that child begins to develop into a mature person, and that child, left to their own uh, way, will know that this is right and this is wrong. I mean, here, here a few years ago, and I hate to even use this example, but it was so tragic, it's burned in my mind around 2013. But where a woman, was, was the jury deadlocked and did not convict her for cutting off both arms of her 18-month-old baby because they said that the jury deadlocked and didn't render a, a, a guilty verdict because they said she didn't know right from wrong. That's the society, and that happens every day in the courts of our, where, well, we don't, we don't even, you know, they don't know right from wrong. Sure, you know right from wrong. God says without a Bible, you know, all you have to do is you know you don't, do you want people to cut your right arms off? No. Well, that's wrong then. You don't have to have a Bible for that. You don't have to have a Bible for that. Let me ask you a question then. Talking about maturity. Listen, you don't have to answer this one now. Don't holler out nothing, okay? Hang on with me. Do you ever act childish? I'm talking about to adults now, that you consider yourself mature. Does your wife ever say you act like a big baby? Do, do, maybe, maybe, the wife, uh, maybe the husband says to the wife, you're acting like a baby, you're acting like a child. You're being very childish right now. See how quiet it's getting? But what I'm trying to get you to see, I'm asking you, do you, I didn't accuse you of it, I'm just asking, do you ever behave childish? And I tell you that probably most of you do, and it's always in the same area. And it's repetitive. And, and, and in that area, for some reason, you believe a lie. And it has hindered you from coming into maturity in that area. And in that area, if that area is violated, then that's where you'll react as a child. That one went down good. All right, number two, immorality. Immorality. When you say the word immorality to church folks, first thing they think about is sexual immorality. I don't know what that reveals about us. But anyway, morality is not limited just to sexual immorality. Morality is just a term that describes the, the behavior or the principles, really, that govern our behavior. And so in the Bible, in Judges chapter 21, 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's, that's what immorality, I just, I mean, you know, I do what, I, I do what feels good. It's, I, mean, I, don't have, I don't have any morals, any guidelines, any principles. And uh, God said, when you don't have any authority in your life, you don't have a king in your life then you just do what's right in your own eyes. So kind of another question to kind of flesh this out is, is what areas in my life do I try to rationalize in? In other words, um, I, I, anyway, I'm just going to use a vivid one here, I guess. I, uh, anyway, that's all I want to think of, so I'm, I guess I'm supposed to use that one. Um, let me see, tell you what I see a lot of times. You, you, you just see where people... In whatever area that they feel like that they've been deprived in, they'll rationalize something that's immoral to meet that need in that area. You, you understand what I'm saying? So they'll, they'll try to, to meet that need. And the need may be godly and legitimate, but you're trying to meet a godly need in an illegitimate, immoral fashion. Okay? So pornography is not your answer for sexual needs. So when my wife is not, you know, uh, being sexual to me, so I'll just look at porn and feel that need. That, that's, that's what I'm talking about. That's a rationalization. That's, that, that, that is where we're suffering from truth decay. And that area is going to cause us difficulty. The third one is not uh, 
is another uh, unreality. I'll just call it unreality. And uh, that's where the people just, you just stop believing in truth and you really you become gullible. You just believe in anything. I'm, you know, uh, now I'm not saying if you got one in your car that this is what you believe, okay? So don't get mad at me. Uh, people get mad at me every Sunday. Anyway, um, but I make more glad than mad. So, um, but I'm, I'm amazed how many people believe in crystals. And I know, it, you know, you know we, we predominantly think of the New Age people. The, the power of crystals, and I mean, I mean, there's, there's just website after website. You know, you buy this crystal, and you hang it from the mirror of your car, and it'll protect you. It gives off of energy. Uh, you can place it on certain parts of your body. It'll heal you. Uh, I remember one time that I had some neighbors that, where I used to live years ago, and, and they moved in, and, and it wasn't long before conversation went around, and, and, you know, she let me know clearly. She believed, because she found out I was a pastor, she believed in crystals, the power of the crystal, you know. And, uh, you know, that's just dumb. It's a rock just a rock it's like a guy made millions off the idea of pet rock just took a rock and made dry eyes on it and sold it back in the 70s or something like that I mean one time years ago I walked into John Deere place here in Van Austin and on the counter they had a rock and it was painted green and yellow and I said what you got that rock there for they said we, we, we got a bet going on with all the guys that work here that people will buy anything painted with green and yellow and we're waiting till somebody comes in and wants to buy that rock and we got a pot going back here with a bet and it wasn't long before I went in there and the rock was gone. So I guess somebody come along and bought it. <laughs> they were just saying people are just crazy over that green and yellow man, John Deere. Very John Deere person, which I am. I mean, I like them. But they said if it's green and yellow, they don't care. You can paint anything green and yellow. They'll John Deere person to buy it. You know? Um, the fourth one is a lack of integrity. And um, we, we see that a lot. And I, and I want to call this the Titanic myth. The Titanic myth. And the reason I say that is because, and I mentioned it last Sunday, but what this is, is we think that if we compartmentalize our lives, then we can't sink. In other words, up till the Titanic was built, uh, the ships in those days just had uh, one huge hull. But what made the Titanic what they thought unsinkable is for the first time, they took that huge hull and they compartmentalized it. In other words, they have compartments all in there. And what they said was, this is why they said even God can't sink his ship. They said this, this ship is unsinkable and, and, uh, because they said that we're, we have all these compartments. And, and so even if we have a breach in the hull, we can take on some water and not sink the ship. And uh, how many knows they were deadly wrong on that? And so what we think is if we compartmentalize our lives, that I can take on some sin, I can take on some things, do some things that are truth decay, and I still won't sink my marriage. I know I got this going on over here, and I'm kind of flirting with this gal at work, and she's cute, and I kind of, we kind of text, and my wife don't know about it, but we're kind of, you know, we're communicating over the phone, you know, that's why I don't let my wife mess with my phone, I can change the code every day, or whatever, so she, you know, but, but I can handle it, I've got, I've got it, I've got it contained. Well, I know I've got a problem in this area here, and I'm a believer, and I love the Lord and all, and I, but i got this little kind of sin thing here i got going on, but I, I can handle it. i got it, I got it compartmentalized. Another way you, compartmentalization is that, that uh, I have my church life. I act one way on Sunday. I act another way on Monday. Uh, I have my friends that don't go to church, and I hang out with them, and I act just as foolish as they do. And then when I go out to supper with my Christian friends and I act a whole different way 
And then when I'm dealing with my business associates, I portray myself in a different way. And then when I hang out around with my family, I portray myself in a different way. That is a person that is headed for a Titanic-type disaster. A, a person of integrity, the word integrity comes from the word uh, integer. Remember, remember that from mathematics? Integer, and it just means one or whole. And so if you, if you don't have integer, which the word integrity comes from, then you have a loss of integrity. So a compartmentalized life is a loss of integrity. D do you see that? And so how do you know you have integrity? You're the same all the time. What you see is what you get. You, you, I mean, you're the same. You're, you're the same person seven days a week, 24 hours a day. You're the same person. And, 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 and if that's not said of you, then you may be living a compartmentalized view, which is not God's worldview. And so... Uh, what is God's worldview? Does he have one? Uh, what, what is his view of the world today, right now? Uh, how, how does he see it? I, I would say to you, boy, that's a daunting question. And it may even seem presumptuous for somebody, you know, anybody to, to try to answer, you know, well, God, what's your worldview? I, I believe our clearest view of how God sees the world has to come through looking through the eyes of Jesus Christ. How, how did Jesus treat people? What did he do? What did he say to them uh, when he walked this earth? And, and it's only when we look through the eyes of Jesus that we can begin because, see, Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Jesus is the visibleness of God. Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. You, do you agree with that? Je they said, show us God or show us the Father. Jesus said, you're looking at him. When you see me, you've seen the Father. Now, now listen, most Christians... Now listen, most Christians don't have a very good understanding of how God sees us, of how God sees them. And, and I'm not surprised about this because it's really hard, it's really difficult for us to comprehend uh, how God views us. God sees us so differently from the way that we see ourselves and the way that others see us, um, there's really no comparison. It's, it's like he and we are looking at two different people. Um, and in a way, that's kind of true because we can only see ourselves from our own past and our own present situation. But God has chosen to see us as we are, I'm talking about if you're born again, as you are right now in the Spirit. That's how God sees you. He doesn't see you uh, in your past or even in your present. He sees you how you are, that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. That's how God sees you. Uh, so I want to give you six ways that God sees, and this is six views, I believe. It's not all of them by no means. I just don't have the time. But the first one, I think everybody agrees with this one. I can preach this in any church. Uh, is unconditional love. God, when God looks at this world as a whole, and I'm talking about folk in church and folk ain't in church. God sees through the lens of and through, I mean, God, that is his eyes, unconditional love. And about any Christian agree with that. They'll go, yeah, amen, I agree with that. Hallelujah, that's a good point. But when it comes to the second one, that's the first one. And I'm not going to spend any time on that because I don't think I need to. I mean, God, unconditional love. Maybe you need an example. Maybe some guy sitting out here on the side of the interstate, you know, dirty, filthy. You know, you can tell he's an addict on something and, and you know, he's begging or whatever. And you look at him like an eyesore like a bum, like a deceptive person. Or and, and, but how would God see that guy? He would probably see him as a guy that's made some pretty poor choices and, and things that have happened. But, but, but God, would, God loves that guy 
just as much as he does anybody sitting in here on these chairs. There, there is no difference in that. God's love, God can't help himself. God is love. God, God don't have love. God is love. So, so they're, they're, I mean, we don't understand that. And, and we make this statement all the time in church, but hardly anybody really gets it, including the one talking, okay? There's nothing you and I can do to make God love us anymore. When you was what you would consider to be the rankest, terrible, meanest, rottenest sinner in the world, okay? God loved you unconditionally. And when you got born again, started coming to church, and straightened up and all that, God, it didn't increase God's love for you. Not one speck. Religious people hate to hear that because they relate to God based on performance, works of the flesh. But there's nothing, listen, there's nothing you can do to cause God to love you more than he did before the foundation of the world. God loves you. You mean even when, fill in the blank, even when, you, yeah, that, he still loves you. It doesn't change his view. Now, I know you didn't go to churches that told you that, but you're at one now that that's the truth. That's the gospel. That's the truth. That's why it's grace. That's why it's good news. Come on now. So the first one's unconditional love, and, and most, by, most Christians, they'll swallow that and go, amen. But when it comes to the second one now, you don't hear this one preached. Unconditional forgiveness. And you hardly ever hear that phrase unless you come here. You cannot have unconditional love if you do not have unconditional forgiveness. Because love keeps no record of wrong. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, read it, check it out, where you can say amen when I say it next time. Love keeps no record. So you're saying that God is love, yet he's keeping a record? I'm getting ahead of myself. Of course not. So, so if you have unconditional love, then the result of unconditional love is unconditional forgiveness. God has forgiven the entire whole world of sin. And sin is no longer an issue with God toward you and how he sees you. It is, I did not say it's not an issue in your life. It will hurt you. It produces death. It will hurt other people. God don't want you to do it. We are not for sin. We are saying don't sin. But our focus is not sin, but on his son. We're not making little of sin. We're making much of Jesus. We're saying focus on him. Set your eyes upon Jesus. Don't become sin conscious. Become Christ conscious. That, that's what sets people free. And, and so, so guilt is probably the most paralyzing emotion that a human can experience. Just guilt. It's like an alarm clock that you can't ever switch off. It's just it's debilitating. I, I, I believe, and, and it's been proven, and I, and I even read some statistics, and I could have put them in here for you, but I just didn't want to, you know, I, just, I, I can only do so much. But I'm telling you, non-church people, non-religious, non-Christian doctors at universities have done studies and have attributed 50% of, they say, of the average adult in a hospital is in there, the root cause is guilt. And if you could remove the guilt from that person, you could get them out of that hospital room. You'd get rid of that disease. Now, some people, I don't believe that. Well, that's, that's you know, here again. That's why I'm preaching this. But, but guilt is so debilitating. And because guilt comes from the knowledge of, of sin, it's just, you know, and, and it's not in our spirit. It's in our soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions. A lot of people, man, I'm telling you, they are dying to hear three words. You are forgiven that's the message that the church has been commissioned to 
to, 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 to tell people. And I didn't say to tell them that they are saved. Because they're not. Because salvation, well, let me say that, forgiveness does not equal salvation. Most Christians think it does. Most Christians think you come down and you get saved and, and you've got forgiveness. No, you received your forgiveness. But your forgiveness happened when? 2,000 years ago on the cross. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So God does not forgive people because they cry, plead, confess, repent, beg, none of that. That's all religion. The only reason that God has ever forgiven of sin is because there was bloodshed. The Bible said that the blood of bulls, goats, and bullets could never remove sin in the Old Covenant. But the blood of Jesus, which is precious, sinless, holy, spotless blood, that blood didn't cover sin. That's why you say, you hear Christians say, you need to put that sin under the blood of Jesus. Your sins are not under the blood of Jesus. You need to put that under the blood, brother. So you're telling me that Jesus died on the cross, but he, he missed this sin, the one I just did. So you're telling me I need to put it under the blood. You can't put your sin under the blood. That makes you the Savior. Are you with me? Your sins are not under the blood. Well, my sins are covered. They are not covered. That's atonement. There is no such thing as atonement in the new covenant. Jesus is the Lamb of God, John said, that takes away the sin of the world. Now listen, he took away. Did he take it away or not? If he didn't take it away on the first crucifixion, he's got to come back and be crucified again. It's not going to happen. When he comes back again, he's not coming back as a sacrificial lamb, but a conquering king. Amen? He's already finished. He, he, Jesus didn't, was not a liar. When he said, it is finished, he meant it. He didn't say, I almost finished it. I don't like but a little bit. I'm almost there. And so we tell the people in the church, well, Jesus done it all. Now you're saved, but now it's up to you to keep it. I lived like that for decades, and I never want to see another person live like that. It's miserable. Fear that you're going to, if rapture comes, you know, or you're worthy or not, you know, if you just kick the dog and cuss the cat, you'll be left here and have to get your head chopped off. Well, that's a just, a, that's, that's just a wonderful religion there to have. It's horrible. Most of us in this room lived under that mess. It's not true. He, he took away the sin of the world. If he took away the sin, not now, not verb sin, noun. Noun is a thing. He took away this thing called sin. You say, well, people still sin. They do, but it's, God is not angry about it anymore because all his wrath was poured out on his son. 1 John 2, 2. And he himself, Jesus here, is the propitiation. I'm not trying to insult you. If you come to church, you hear a lot. You know what it means. But it means the appeasing sacrifice, the acceptable sacrifice. It's not a word we use in our English language. But Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And listen, that's the Christians. Ours, Christians. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So God has forgiven people that will never even accept him. But God has forgiven them. Now listen, they are not enjoying the benefit of that forgiveness. But as far as from God towards that person, God is not angry with them, and God has forgiven them of sin. They've not come and accepted by faith that sacrifice, and they're not enjoying the benefits of that forgiveness. But it's not because God hadn't forgiven them. It's because they hadn't yet believed 1 John 4, 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Now, that's a real hot verse, and I don't have time to get into that today. I, maybe I'll devote a whole sermon to that before long. But I want to deal with this inclusion 
or this universalism that is so prevalent now because grace is, is changing the landscape of the land. I'm telling you, it's a, there is a grace reformation going on. But along with that, there is some error where people are taking like, and, they, and they'll take that verse and they'll say, well, does it say that he's the Savior of the world or not? And you go, yeah. Well, then, you're saying that, that, G, that Adam is stronger than Jesus. No. Well, that means he saved the world. All the world is saved. Well, I'm like, well, why have I been preaching for 37 years then or whatever? I mean, why have I been? It's ridiculous. No, to the many as believed upon him. You, you know, that, that we, there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus. We still must be saved. How are we saved? By faith in him. Not of works that we do, but by believing the truth of the goodness and the grace of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 19, that is that God, this is one of my favorite verses, was in Christ. God was in Christ, reconciling the world, not the church, not them that would believe, but it was reconciling the world to himself. That's why on the night of his birth at Bethlehem, the angel said to the shepherds that it, it is now, this is the message, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. We've taken that little phrase, made it a Christmas thing, and said that what God was saying, that the world should just be at peace tonight and everybody should stop killing one another. And so around Christmas, you know, it used to be, and now it's got where it doesn't even matter, but used to, you know, that nations, even when we were at war with nations and other nations, they would take a, a, a peace time over Christmas. That has nothing, I mean, I admire that, glory to God, but it has nothing to do with it. God was saying that the anger and the wrath, this is the answer. I'm, I'm going to bring peace between me and sin by the birth of my son. Peace on earth now, and this is good towards men. This is my goodwill, my grace, in other words, toward men. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to how many men? To all men. To all men. So God was in Christ. He reconciled the world to himself. Look at this now. Don't miss this phrase. Not imputing. That's another word we don't use much. Not recording. Not accounting. Not keeping a record of their sins, their trespasses. God doesn't keep a record. And then he's committed this word to us in this ministry of reconciliation. Your, it is your ministry to tell everybody what I just read. Listen, dude, man, you know, you know that God, God doesn't hold anything against you today. You're forgiven. And they'll go, what? I ain't asked for forgiveness. Listen here, Taterhead, God don't need your permission to forgive you. God does not need your permission to forgive you. He's already forgiven you. Too late, too bad. You're forgiven. Well, I don't accept it. I know. That's why I'm talking to you. <laughs> God is not keeping score. And religious people hate to hear that because they think people are just going to go strip off neck and run wild, screaming, sin like crazy. You know why? Because that's what they would do if they were out from under the bondage of the law for five minutes. <laughs> Without that relationship with love, who is God. Listen, God's not Santa Claus. He, he's not making a list, checking it twice, trying to find out who's naughty and nice and reward you based on that. You know, he, you know, red is the color of the devil. You know that, right? You know, Santa and Satan are the same words. They just rearrange different. I'm, I'm messing with y'all. <laughs> I love, hey, I love Santa, man. God bless him. We put up a tree at my house. We celebrate. Okay, you know, so. 
God, I don't want to get no emails on that one. <clears throat> Your sin account has a zero balance. Your sin account has a zero balance. Well, I just sinned a while ago. Still zero. Because God has forgiven a sin that you had not even committed yet. Does that mean I go sin like crazy? Yeah, if you're stupid. Because you're going to hurt yourself. Wages of sin is death. I don't mean eternal death. That you're, because if you're a Christian, you have eternal life. So you can't have eternal life and eternal death. In the same, you can't have no mixture. The church says you got eternal life, but it's not really eternal. And it's up to you to keep it eternal. That's just as stupid. So the first way God sees is unconditional love. Second way is unconditional forgiveness. And the third is that, that since God is not keeping a record of your sins, then guess what that means? God is not mad at you or anybody on this earth. So when you hear the preachers get in the pulpit and say God sent Katrina to New Orleans, because they got strip joints there and he tried to drown them all. They're lying. They're misinformed. When a hurricane comes through and wipes out people's homes and kills people, God didn't send it. How many storms? Show me one storm that Jesus ever blessed. Show me one tragedy that Jesus said, that'll show them. I'll just come in and kill off a bunch of people. And then right now you're trying to think about old covenant stuff. There is a penalty because you said you were going to keep the law and you didn't. The wages of sin. And the, but we're not in the old covenant now. We're in the new covenant. The Bible says that God is love. See, religion says God loves you, but he's also mad at you. It's impossibility. 1 John 4, 16, God is love. Everything, listen, everything he does is an expression of his love for you. It, it, listen to me. Now listen to this statement. If the wrath of God scares you, the wrath of God scares you, then you got a wrong picture of wrath because there is no fear in love. 1 John 4, 17. I'm going to put this up for you. 1 John 4, 17 says, listen, love has been, not will be, has been perfected among us in this. Now, this is how you know that you've, the love of God has been perfected in you. Now, it's already been done, but that don't mean that you've received it or understand it or have the revelation of it. See, I, I'm not going to pray. You'll say, Brother Dale, I just, you come up for prayer and you say, Brother Dale, would you pray for me that I will, uh, you know, I just don't feel the love of God and I just pray that, you know, God will love me more. And I, I can't pray for that. The love of God has already been shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. You may not be experiencing it, but it's not from God. It's not because God's cut down the, the tap on you. God's love is already in you. The fullness of God's love is in your spirit. Well, I'm not experiencing it. Well, that's not God's fault. You need a revelation of the love of God that surpasses knowledge. That's what Paul prayed for the church. Paul never prayed, not one person in the New Testament ever prayed for revival. You know, the greatest need of America is revival. We don't need revival. It's not even a biblical term. I know, it's, I know that's just like diabolical, I would say that, because it's such a common thing in the church. We need a revival, brother. We don't need a revival. You need, why didn't, Paul, why didn't anybody in the New Testament, why didn't anybody, Jesus or anybody, ever say the word? Why didn't anybody ever pray at one time? No, because Paul said what you need is a revelation of the love of God, of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You need to understand what's been done for you and stop trying to ask God to do stuff that's already done. Amen, Amen that's the truth. Look, the, the love of God has been perfected among us in this. Listen, that we may have what? Boldness. In the day of judgment. Bold. How many Christians do you know that have confidence and boldness about facing the judgment of God? 
That they could go, in other words, you could die and, and go to the judgment of God with boldness. How many Come on now, no playing here. How many Christians do you really know? I mean, what about you? Do you, do you? do you feel that boldness? I mean, you, don't, you have zero concern about the judgment of God. Walking up before Almighty God, you've got zero concern in your heart about, you, you know, just this. Uh, no, listen, it, it, that's what he says. The Bible, who are the, who are the bold in the Bible? Who is bold as a lion? Thank you, I was listening to quick preaching, brother. The righteous are as bold as a lion. The kingdom is, is seek you first. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not your righteousness. You don't have any. Paul said the Jews have missed everything for they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and they seek to establish their own righteousness, which God will always reject. Because our righteousness is filthy rats compared to the righteousness of God. That you'll have boldness in the day of judgment. Because why? Okay, so why have we, this is how we know his love has been perfected. I'm breaking this verse down. Because we will be bold as our approach to God. And then it says, because as he is, so are we in this world. That scripture there just, just blows my mind. It, blows, it should blow your mind. As who is? As he was? As he will be. Okay, as he is. Let's talk about how he is. Is Jesus loved by the Father? Is Jesus at the right hand of the Father? Is Jesus perfect? Is Jesus righteous? Is Jesus holy? Will God ever reject Jesus? Will God ever get mad at Jesus? So as he is, if you've been born again, so are you right now in this world. You're just like that. You are for molecule per molecule just like Jesus. You are righteous like Jesus. You are as perfect as Jesus. You are as loved as Jesus. You are as holy as Jesus. You are as in the love of the Father as Jesus is in the love of the Father. Now, if you believe that, then you should bite a chunk out of that chair in front of you. I mean, this, I mean it's, if you, it's, it's the greatest news in the world. That's God's view of you. That's how he sees you. Even when I sin, he's not looking at your sin. He's already took away your sin. He's looking at his son. He's looking at the sacrifice. And he's looking at your born-again spirit that's been made new in Christ Jesus. The new you is really new. Verse 18, there's no fear in love. There's no fear in love. There's no fear in love. Stranger pulls up your house, gets out, wearing a trench coat. All of a sudden, first motion you have is you fear. I wonder what they want. I left my gun in the house. I'm about to go back and get it. Why? Because you don't love that person. But if your son or daughter pulled up in a trench coat, you'd go, you know, I'm not much for fashion on that deal, but come on in the house. There, there would be no fear. There would be no fear because you love them. See, there's no fear in love, but perfect love, I wonder whose love is perfect. There's only one now. It's not a hard question. You, do, you, do you dare to believe that any of us have ever, for even one millisecond, exhibited perfect love, even to our spouse, even to our children? No. Not perfect love. Come on, don't kid yourself. There's only, there's only one perfect love, and the source of that's God. So perfect love casts out how much fear? Cast out fear. 
Because fear involves torment. You ever been tormented with thoughts of rejection, that God's angry with you, that God don't like you, that God's displeased with you, that God's against, against you, that the hell and the suffering that's going on in your life and circumstances because God's doing it? All those are lies of religion. Perfect love casts out all fear because fear has torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And by the way, we love him because he first loved us. And until you get the revelation that he loves you first, you'll never be able to reciprocate any love towards him. Religion says, now God's died for you, what are you going to do for him? What will you pay him? It is an insult to God for you to ever try to pay him back for what he did on the cross. You can't do it even if you're offered your life. Isaiah 54, 9, read this some weeks ago. It says, God says, this is like the waters of Noah to me. Now, Isaiah was a prophet, and he was prophesying about the new covenant. In chapter 53, he starts off like, who, who has believed the report that I'm supposed to give? And he talks about there's going to be a, Jesus is going to go to the cross. He's going to suffer and die. And then and he's moving through the uh, revelation of that. And then he gets to 54, and he says that death is going to bring about a new covenant. And God says in verse, I think it's 8 or something above, God said, now, I was angry for a moment, just for a moment with you. And what's he talking about? That moment that the law was in place. But he, Isaiah prophesied and said, this is like the waters of Noah to me. Now, how many knows the flood of the whole world is a big deal? That's why you got a Grand Canyon. Okay? I mean, that's, the, whole, the flood of the whole world is a huge, that's a big deal. God said it's like that to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would never cover the earth again, so I have also sworn that I will not be angry with you nor rebuke you. Now, any preacher or any religious person that ever portrays God as angry at you, they're not being true. And man, I grew up under that. God was always angry at something. Does that mean God don't care if we sin? I didn't say that. But God is not angry over the issue of sin in the world. God don't want you to sin because you're his kid and he loves you and it brings hurt to you and others. But no more than I would want my kid to stick their finger in a fan and cut off their finger and surf. No, I'm not angry. I just, I, you know, I don't want them to do it because it's going to hurt them. God's not a man. God, and, and so he, God said, I'll never be angry with you again. You, you, you know, some of you warned about Moses. You know, Moses was such a, the Bible said he was the most humble man in the earth at that time, Right? And he's led these people out of the Egyptian bondage, and he's done so much for them, and he's been a good guy. And, and, and one day, he just loses his temper, man. He calls them names. He said, you bunch of rebels. <laughs> I mean, he just had it up to here with them. And, I, you know, you got to give the brothers props. I mean, he just, he lost it. He's like, you bunch of rebels, shall I fetch water out of this rock for you? I mean, he was just giving it to them, man. He was angry. He was angry. He was calling them names. You know, after he did that, God said, and bring your brother with you. Old covenant now, old covenant. This is the lawgiver. God said, come here. <clears throat> Listen to me, son. Because you failed to sanctify me and keep me holy before the people, you shall no way lead them in to the promised land. You're not going to do it. Somebody says, well, I don't like that. And, and people say, well, that he did that, you know, for this reason. No, the, the Bible says that the reason Moses could not enter in is because he didn't present God as holy and sanctified. In other words, what does that mean? He, he presented God because he was God's representative. So he, he portrayed God as God was angry. God wasn't angry. Moses was angry. 
But since Moses is a representative of God, he portrayed that God's angry. And that's what, that's what caused him not to be able. Because another revelation is the law, law can never lead you into the promises of God. The law can show you your need of a Savior, of a Joshua. But you have to hook up with Joshua to go on into the promises of God. Joshua is the same word in Hebrew, Jesus. So Jesus is the one that leads you into the promises of God so that you inherit and get to eat the grapes and enjoy the milk and the honey. But if you don't, you can't not enjoy any of that with the law. The most miserable people in church are people that are trying to live by the law. They're miserable and they mean. And they present God as mean, but God is not angry with anyone. Is this just too good or what? Are y'all just used to hearing it so much it don't matter no more? So the truth is that God was angry. But his, your sins caused that anger, my sins. But the, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, and he's not angry anymore. The fourth way that God sees the world and you is you can't be condemned for any reason. Because he, there is unconditional love, there is unconditional forgiveness, that God's not angry. All these are just steps. Therefore, since all of that's true, then if, you, if he's not, you've been forgiven and God's not angry, then you can't be condemned for any reason. That's what Romans 8 and 1 says. Therefore, is, there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ. Are you in Christ? You can't be condemned. The word translated con condemnation there is a Greek word. starts with a K. Can't pronounce it. But it, it means also punishment. So sometimes it's translated punishment. Sometimes it's translated condemn. Here it's translated condemnation. So it's the same word. So we can read it like this. Do no disservice to the original text. There is no punishment for those who are in Christ. One of the messages that got me a lot of response, and, uh, and I put, I, did, I think I even did a blog on it, but the title was, What If You Were Unpunishable by God? I need to preach it again. I looked over it yesterday and then just got happy about it and started preaching it again. You are unpunishable by God as a believer. Now, there are consequences for bad choices. I'm just trying to get you to be clear on this one fact. God's not the one doing it to you. You stick your hand, like I said, in the fan. And you cut your fingers off, you curse God if you want to. It's because you wasn't careful, you wasn't diligent, you wasn't paying attention, whatever. But God didn't shove your hand in the fan. God's not shoving people in front of cars. God's not killing people. God's not doing any of that. That brings to another one. That's too big a boulevard to go down. But God's, God's in control, brother. No, he's not in control of the earth. No, he's not. If God's in control of this earth, I don't want to go to heaven because he's not doing a great job here then. You know, so I like. I mean, no, no, God's not in control. God's, God, God's in charge. Are, the Valdosta PD are they in charge or control of Valdosta? Charge. They're not in control. They control every movement you make, what you do. If they're in control, then that means when you was hammering the nail yesterday and hit your thumb and cursed, that, that, that was their fault. Valdosta PD, let that happen. Why'd you allow that to happen, Valdosta PD? See how dumb that is. See, if you ask a wrong question, you'll always get a wrong answer. Why did God allow this to happen in my life? It's something Christians love to do. I don't understand, brother, why God allowed this to happen. See, your premise is wrong. God didn't allow it to happen. You allowed it to happen or somebody else allowed it to happen. This ain't happened yet. People do a lot of stupid stuff on this earth, okay? The earth has been given to men, but the heavens belong to the Lord. Psalm 118, read it, check it out, okay? God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him, John 3, 17. We know John 3, 16, but we hardly know John 3, 17. God didn't send his son to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be saved. Because 
of this. See, there's no condemnation. Jesus said, I'll tell you the truth, John 5, 24. Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life, listen, and will not be condemned. Now what does it say? He who believes on me and him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has passed over from death to life. It ain't he, will pass, he has passed over from death to life. That's John 5, 24. Now listen, none of those verses I just read required anything from you except one thing, and that's you believe in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. That's all. Everything was settled. Jesus went to the cross for you, listen, but he also went as you. He died as your substitute. He not only died for you, he died as you. Number five, God's not punishing you. God is not punishing you. Religion says that God punishes you when you sin. Uh, it says he punishes, you know, all of his children and he burns up the rest of them. Okay? Doesn't really paint a good picture of God, does it? Let me ask you this question. One of my most favorite stories, I don't have time to read any of it, John 8, the woman caught in the act of adultery. Okay? Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus punish that woman who was caught in the act of adultery? I need a really stronger answer than that. I mean, did he not have authority to, to punish her? I mean, why Pharisees bring, him to, to bring her to Jesus in the first place? Well, they really brought her to Jesus in the first place to try to trip him up. Now listen, public stoning was the punishment for adultery in that day, for her sin. Now listen, her accusers, which are the scribes and the Pharisees, are standing with stones in their hands that would soon take the life of this woman and might I add a painful death. Can you imagine being stoned to death? Keep throwing stones at you until they, one of them hits you hard enough in the head to maybe knock you out and they just keep pelting you with stones until you are murdered. What a horrendous, horrific way to be executed. And she knows that that's her fate. And she knows that there's no alternative. And there's no reprieve. That's what's going to happen. And in fact, they already have the stones and they probably stopped on the way with her held in hostage while they're gathering the stones and they're standing there with the stone in their hands and and now they ask Jesus the law says we could stone her what do you say so Jesus you know stoops down all your preachers say he wrote in sand now, I'm not trying to be a smarty britches but after a while reading the Bible you should figure out some stuff if you look in verse 1 of John 8 it says that they were in the temple Jesus was in the temple teaching and they interrupted his teaching by bringing this woman throwing him at her feet so in the temple, nobody will tell you that there's sand floors, dirt floors in the temple. This is Herod's temple. King Herod had this thing remodeled. It is elaborate. You can study about it. But so Jesus takes his finger. Everybody in all these sermons, you know, I believe he wrote this in the sand. I believe he wrote this. Jesus took his finger and put it on stone, marble, whatever. But it's a stone floor in the temple. Okay? And, and so... That may not mean much to us. We, we go with dirt and he's writing, he's writing something. Religion. He puts his finger on stone and begins to write. These are Pharisees and scribes. And if it wasn't for both of those two people, we wouldn't even have a Bible. Okay? But every one of them were Jews. And every one of them Jews knew who took his finger and wrote on stone. And that was God the Father. And what did he write? The only thing he wrote with his finger was the Ten Commandments. One of those is not commit adultery, but there's nine others. And Jesus does that and doesn't answer them. And then Jesus stands up and says, 
he among you, scribes, Pharisees, who is without sin. Now we miss this. Who is without sin. That statement means you have never sinned in your life. Not that you're clean today, but you have never had any acquaintance with sin ever. That's what it means. You are you who are without sin. Noun. Noun. Throw the first stone at her. They leave one by one. And so what happens? The grace giver completely disarmed her accusers. They fled. Listen, they fled as the grace of God drove away the judgments of men. Grace is that superior to judgment. God desires mercy and not wrath. That's who he is. And listen, listen, no one needed to tell her that she needed to put her faith in Christ. Notice that. Grace is the atmosphere of love that makes faith in Jesus the only logical response. No altar calls, no play just as I am 47 times and tell three car wreck stories. Maybe that's why the Apostle Paul, the great grace preacher, taught that faith, listen, that faith is according to grace in Romans 4.16. Grace is a result. In other words, faith, he said, is according to grace. Why don't we see more people placing their faith in Jesus Christ, Pastor Dale? Because we, don't have a, we need a greater revelation of the grace of God. The greater the revelation of the grace of God, the more people will, in other words, that, that is the only logical, uh, uh, only reasonable response to that kind of love is to surrender your life to that person. Do you think that woman jumped up from that no condemnation? Jesus said, where's your accusers, your condemners? She said, I don't have. See, Jesus wanted to remove her from one thing, guilt. Because guilt is a result of condemnation, and condemnation is a result of being sinful. In other words, the judge says you are what? Guilty. We find you guilty, and we sentence you to this, punishment. No. God says you are guilty, but I attribute my righteousness to you, and I take your guilt and sin, your sin. And see, uh, if Jesus, listen, if Jesus didn't punish her, then he won't punish you. Did you hear me? Now, I ask you, did he punish her? If he punished her and then won't punish you or punish you and won't punish her, see, he can't be like that. He has to be the same, yesterday, today, and forever. And so uh, if it's not true of the son, it's not true of the father. Okay? Religion threatens punishment. You know why they do that? They, they want to compel their people you know, to proper behavior. They think if you threaten you, you better straighten up. God's going to kill you dead. You know, preachers love to do that stuff. That's, that's wielding that big stick of religion, man. Y'all better straighten up, man. God, God, you know, you don't want to make God angry, boy. I'll tell you what, he'll, he'll go to killing off people. Listen, listen to me. The punishment that brought us peace was on Jesus. Isaiah 53 and 5. The punishment, the chastisement, that's what the word means. If you chastise a person, you're punishing him. The, the chastisement, the punishment of our peace was upon Jesus. Now listen, how can God punish twice for one offense? If God punishes his, if his son bore the punishment for sin, then how can God turn around and punish you? I'm telling you, I'm not saying if you do sin, it don't matter. I'm saying if you do sin, you're going to hurt yourself. But I'm trying to get you to be absolutely clear because this is the problem. People get angry with God and they reject God because they think God's behind it. 
when you're going through a hard time and you're suffering. I, my office had been filled up all these, over three decades with people that the reason we lost this, the reason we had this happen, the reason I lost my job, or God's paying me back for my sin. Or I was, uh, you know, I've got this disease now, you know, in my ovaries because uh, I was sexually, you know, promiscuity and all when I was a teenager. And I know now I'm just reaping that. The church, I, just a whole other message another day, another Sunday. But the church believes more in karma than they do in the word of God. Most Christians believe in karma. You reap what you sow. That is not a New Testament principle. There is reaping and sowing. But you read the context of it. I know you've heard the preachers yell that one out of James at you. God's not my whatever man soweth that shall he reap. Just because somebody does it like that and says it in that tone does not mean that's what God's saying. That's what they're saying. Sowing and reaping is always based on planting and harvest. And, all, and Paul, the only time Paul ever used it was in giving money. If you sow money, he said you'd reap money. If you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. So sparingly, you reap. So there is sowing and reaping, but you're not paying for your sins. You are reaping what you didn't sow. Jesus sowed his death on the cross in righteousness, and you reap that righteousness, but you didn't sow it. You see, there's a big difference. Last one. Number six, you are his child forever. Isn't this good? This is how God sees you. You're his child. John 1 and 12. But as many as received him, as many as what? Received him. You've got to receive him. To them he gave the right. The, that, the word right there is power, the authority, the exousia, to become children of God. To those who do what? Believe in his name. How many times have you heard somebody say, now listen to this, Brother Dale, we all God's children. we all God's children. That ain't true. We ain't all God's children. We, we're not all God's children. Don't, don't you realize that only a born-again believer can legitimately call themselves God's child? That's what the Bible says. Because one of the things that happens when we become born again is that God actually, listen, he adopts us as his very own. Paul taught that extensively. And listen, and as soon as you were born again, you know what? We received, it says, the adoption of sonship. And, and the Spirit of God's Son came into our heart. So listen, he says, you're no longer slaves, but God's children. And listen, and since you are God's children now, then that means you're also an heir of God. And you are an heir of God, and God defines that as a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And he is your elder brother. And everything that belongs to Jesus now belongs to you because Jesus is the one that purchased it with his spotless blood. So from 2 Corinthians, I don't have time to get into this in the first chapter. We learn that what happens, listen, when you get born again, God set his seal upon us. Now, you know what that seal is really? You know, I've talked about how God seals us. But really that seal in, in the context of the Greek culture, that seal was a seal of ownership. Uh, that God put his spirit in our hearts. He said he's guaranteeing what is the future, what's to come. And, and so it's God himself that makes his stand. So in other words, when God freed us from what held us, which is bondage, the slavery of sin, then what he did is he set his own seal of ownership on us. When I was the chief of Tiff County Merchant Medical Service, every year we would do a, a, a yearly audit inventory. Of all the items we had, we had life packs. You know the things that shocked people's heart, and and I I would buy those things for the ambulances. Those things back then cost ten thousand five hundred dollars a piece, and I had eight eight ambulances. So naturally, the county don't want to lose that. So they would send these these this this guy would come by with these seals. They said property of Tiff County with a serial number, and I don't know what kind of glue that brother was was toting, but when he swabbed it across there and put that seal on there. And held it just a moment. You, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't hardly get that. You couldn't hardly pick it off. 
because it was meant to be sealed. It just belongs to Tiff County government. Okay? God did something a lot stronger than that. When you got born again, God put his seal of ownership. And I don't care what they told you in church. There ain't nobody big enough or bad enough, not even your sin, can scrape off that seal and say, this no longer belongs to God and I lost my salvation, I'm going to hell. That, that's just not true. It's just not true. And I've been chased for this. Brother, you believe in once saved, always say, absolutely I believe in that. Totally, completely, irrefutably, eternally. Forgiven, saved, in the family of God, in the hand of God, nobody can snatch me out. What, what, what if your what ifs don't matter? What if I, I will go away from God? You're a son at the Father's house. You're a son when you're leaving the Father's house. You're still a son when you're in the pig pen. You're a son when you're living in the world in the slop. And you're a son on the way home and son when you get back home. But all through that journey, you're still a son. And if you died in the pig pen, you would die as a son. And sons go home to be with Papa. Not some religious, well, they did, didn't, it, ridiculous. Here, this gets me really in trouble, but I'm going to say it because I'm feeling little. There's only one sin that is unpardonable. And the Bible mentions that there is the unpardonable sin. And it will not be forgiven in this world or the world to come. Now, I was raised up in Pentecostalism, and I thought that we was taught that that's, we made fun of somebody who spoke in tongues. And that was unpardonable. And I don't, listen, I know we're laughing now. Hey, I evangelized for six years before I started pastoring. I cannot even remember and tell you how many people, numerous times, would come up in altar prayer to me. And they would be crying. And I would say, what can I, what can I pray with you about? Brother, I think I've blasphemed the Lord. I've, I've committed the unforgivable sin. And, 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 and sometimes I was not able even to convince them that they had not. That it, you cannot do that as a Christian. It's impossible. Even if you could, your sin would be forgiven. But that's unpardonable sin. What is that? It is the sin of rejecting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. No man, woman, and I know it says all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. I've read the Bible, okay? I understand all that. But they're not going to hell because they're a liar. There'll be a lot of liars going to heaven. I know you don't hear that. You, I, I don't guess you've been in the world then, but I, Christians lie to you. They'll lie to you. I'm just going to say that. Christians will tell a lie. They lie. Listen, I, I mean, I, I, can't even, I can't even tell you how many preachers lie to me. Preachers lie to me. I go to preaching in these cities. I've I got to be careful here because this goes out, so I have to be careful. But, I mean, preachers have lied to me for years. Preaching, I've stood beside preachers. Boy, I mean, all my life, preachers have lied to me. Stood there at, the, at a place, where, you know, and a guy said, Brother, you know, I, I want to book you for a revival. I heard what a great revival you had in this city. I want you to come to, to my city in Savannah. I want you to come to Savannah and preach a revival. I said, okay, glory to God. So he whooped out his little appointment book. I whooped out mine. This is before you got iPhones. And so we were, and all of a sudden, my gorgeous wife walks up. Well, his wife, uh, that you could just tell by the way they were dressing that they believed in, you know, what they would say, wholeness. Okay? I, I don't care how you dress. And, I, mean, I, I mean, please have something on but you know what I mean by that. Your beauty's not from the outside, anyway, from the inside. But listen, but because my wife had on a little makeup, maybe some earrings or something, I forget. But, I mean, the whole atmosphere shifted. These things hurt. It hurt her because she knew what happened. If she'd have stayed away 15 more minutes, I'd have had a revival. <laughs> now, that's back when we was in a, in a, in a, in a, in a legalistic view of things. 
And, and anyway, that's just the way it was. Since I've been preaching here, I've gone into other cities, and I had this pastor saying, well, you know, as soon as I move into my new building, Brother Dale, uh, and I was sitting with him and, and two of his elders at a, at a restaurant that they set the meeting up. I didn't, I didn't even know these people. He said, I want you to come and do the dedicatory service and, and dedicate the building and be there that Sunday, and I'm going to call you just as soon as we got the building. You think I ever got called on that? Well, maybe you just forgot. No, he lied. It's called a lie. I, uh, you know, and, and t- listen. The sin that sends people to destruction is not believing in the sacrifice and receiving what Jesus did. And upon those people, the wrath of God abides upon them. John 3, 17, 18, then you read verse 19 and 20. See, he that believeth upon the Son of God is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. That doesn't mean God's doing it. That just means they hadn't received the benefit of the sacrifice of his son's death. And because they choose that path, because God leaves you a free will, you can choose. But you are God's child, and that's how God sees you. And, and, and there's, there's nothing that will ever change that. And so eternal life is not something that we've earned. It's not something that we've accomplished by our works or our own personal effort. It, it, listen, the, the, the eternal life is a work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it cannot be undone. I, I, I didn't believe that for so many years, for so many decades. I didn't, I didn't believe that because I was taught that that's not true. But it is true according to the Bible. Nothing in all of creation can change what the Father has done in, by making me his child. No, nothing can change it. That's what Romans 8 is all about. The death, life, no, nothing can separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And nobody can ever take that and pluck me out of the Father's hand, the Bible says. And once you are born again, you are God's child forever. And I don't, I don't mean that you always do the right thing or look the right. And if that makes you want to run in sin, then it really makes me concerned for you. I'm not trying to make you doubt, but I'm concerned that you may not have actually met Jesus. I end with this. The woman caught in adultery again. Do you actually believe when Jesus said, woman, where are your condemners? She said, I have none, Lord. He said, neither do I condemn you. But then he said, go and sin no more, didn't he, church? That's all I've said to you today. I've mentioned sin, just like Jesus mentioned it. He said, now go and sin no more. Why? Because he loves that woman. But what, 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 what is it that would give her the power to even have a hope of going and sinning no more? It was the free gift of his grace of no condemnation. If you really knew that, listen, if you were unpunishable, and there's no condemnation by God anywhere in your life, that is what gives you the power to go and sin no more. Do you really believe that woman went and went back and got right back into bed and started having uh, adulterous sex with that man that apparently was still at the house? Takes two to have adultery, but anyway, they didn't bring him. But do, do you think that, he, that she ran back, took all her clothes off, and got into bed and continued the sexual act right after she left that uh, situation with Jesus? You really believe that? You see how dumb that is? It's almost, it's not even dumb, it's offensive to even suggest such. That's how I feel when somebody tells me that if when I preach grace, it makes them, you know, that he's just telling you you sin like crazy. That's the way it makes me feel. A person that believes that believes that woman went back and took her clothes off fast, she could get them off and got right back in the bed with that guy. That's what they're telling you. But grace don't make you sin. Grace delivers you from the power of sin. For, you, for, for sin shall not have dominion over you anymore. For you're not under the law. But you're under the grace of God. You're under 
God's grace. Can you give the Lord praise for that? You receive it this morning. Come on, stand to your feet. Hallelujah. Ministry team, come. Elders, come help me pray for people if they want prayer this morning. It's always our honor, privilege, and pleasure to pray with you if you want prayer for any reason. Man, the greatest thing that you could do today is believe the Word of God and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so if you're listening to this or you're here on this campus and you've not received Jesus, please do that. You can do it right where you are. It's not about a prayer. It's not repeating after me. It's not doing any of those things. It's just believing that God is who he says he is, and he's a God of grace and goodness. And then when his grace fills the atmosphere, you know what happens? It makes your faith be placed in Jesus, which is your only reasonable response to an atmosphere of grace. And that's what I want this church to be every Sunday, every day, is an atmosphere of grace here that will make Jesus, choosing Jesus, the only logical, reasonable choice at all is to put their faith and trust in Jesus. And I don't have to tell car wreck stories or dangle people over hell on a rotten stick. None of, that's, none of that does anything but scares people. God loves you. You're his kid. This is God's worldview that I've preached to you today. This is how God sees the world, and it's how God sees you. And if you'll start seeing him and yourself through the light of God's view, it'll change everything. It'll change your world. It'll change everything in your life. Hey, if you want just to come up today and meet me and you've been coming here and I, this has been happening a lot of Sundays lately people say well I've been coming here two years brother Dale and I've never come up and even met you or talked to you man I'm loving that and not because I think I'm something but I think you're something and you're worth meeting and worth greeting and I'd love to meet you and greet you and, and get to know you we're always here to serve you and you're God's kids we want to serve you the best and well as we can so we love you appreciate you being here today thank you for coming in July and not taking the whole month off for vacation but uh <laughs> Preachers always look forward to August and kind of get people back in the, you know, in church and all. But we love you so much. So we pray for you today. I'm going to dismiss the church. While they're going that way, would you please come this way? And it'll be our honor to pray with you today. Okay? God bless you. We love you. If you want prayer, come up here and we'll, we'll meet with you and pray with you about anything you want to pray about. God bless you, church. Go enjoy the day. God bless you. <laughs>